Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Welcome back to A Different Kind of Walk. Today, we are privileged to spend some time with Mandy Smith, who is the lead pastor at St. Lucia Uniting Church in St. Lucia, Australia. She is a writer and a public speaker, which is how I first met her leading breakout sessions at conferences in the U.S. several years ago. And any interactions I've had with her have been ones of gentle leadership and welcome. And I'm so glad to share her voice with you today. So, Mandy, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's good to be with you. First of all, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? What was life like when you were growing up? Um, I know you ended up in the United States for a while. What took you there? Mm -hmm. Um, And like, what's your faith background? Yeah, so I grew up here in Brisbane. I'm back here again after being gone for about 30 years, Brisbane, Australia. Um, Grew up in the city, um, loved to go into town and um, grew up in a Christian family in the Churches of Christ. And then um, my then boyfriend decided he was going to go to America to study the Bible at a Bible college. He got a um, scholarship to do so. I was still actually in in year 12 at the time. And, um, And I was like, well, you're not going without me. So I graduated from high school in December. We have a different school year here. Then I got married in April, and then we went to live in the States in July. So I was like 18. I left everybody and um, went to study with him. So we were in Cincinnati for six years to study and then went to England for his PhD. And at that point, we planned to come back to Australia. The point was just to study and then bring it back here. Um, And then things, the opportunity we thought we'd have here closed. And at the same time, the thing we had done back in Cincinnati Um, the college there asked him to come back and teach once he'd finished his PhD. So in 1998, we moved back to Cincinnati from the UK for two years. And then we were there for about 20 years, as you know, life does that sometimes ended up having our kids there and all that kind of thing. So and um, while there, I became the pastor at University Christian Church, which is how we had a connection. Um, So yeah, grew up in a Christian family in the Churches of Christ, um, kind of restoration movement and um I can't remember if there were any other questions you asked but that's the short version nice good what school in Cincinnati did you go to the university or uh no it it was um it doesn't exist anymore sadly Cincinnati Christian University which is a big university in our small pond of churches of Christ and Christian churches um but sadly it went the way of quite a few universities during COVID that um you know a lot of Oh. A lot of denominations are finding that situation in their seminaries. That was one of the reasons why we moved back to Australia because my husband was um, working there at the time and the whole place closed. So we were like, okay, oh. maybe okay. this is a good time to go. Yeah. yeah. I want to make a blanket statement, but I also want people to know that I realize not everyone will agree with this blanket statement. 
So I understand that. Here it is. Many different strains of Christianity throughout history have proven to be quite oppressive to women and have been, some even remain, adamantly opposed to women in leadership. So Mandy, I know that this is a topic that you have personal experience with. And on your website, thewayistheway.org, it states that as the first female lead pastor in a movement of 6,000 congregations, Mandy has had to navigate these dynamics in deep personal ways and wants to offer the hope and healing that she's found in the journey, even as she continues to grow and learn in it. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about that journey in becoming a leader in the church, specifically a lead pastor, mm. and what some of the obstacles have been. Mm. Well, growing up in Australia, um, it wasn't really a thing that was talked about that much in the church. I think our church had two interns who were women at some point, um, but I didn't have a lot of female role models. But it also didn't become a big political or theological debate. I think it was a matter of... Um, well, we don't have many leaders and if you're able to help, that's great. It was just a practical thing. Mm -hmm. So we didn't even look into the position about that stuff with the college that we mentioned that we went to in Cincinnati. And when we got there, we started to realize like, oh, this is a thing. We haven't explored those passages. And there was a theologian at the school who was quite well known for his position about women in leadership and it wasn't pro Um and so as a young woman going to Bible college, you know, feeling called by God in my own spirit to just pursue him and to follow whatever he was calling me to do, really wanting to study the Bible, at the same time being in a context that was often saying everything I shouldn't be doing and talking about women as an issue to be discussed instead of having sensitivity to the fact that as we're tossing these theological concepts and Bible passages around there are women in the room who whose lives are being tossed around. So, you know, growing up is a hard thing. And then when you have that kind of thing thrown in as well, it's very painful. So it actually became a bit of a crisis for me when I was in my early 20s. I was also reading a lot of feminism and um, I just felt this crisis of um, the God in my personal life seemed to be saying very different things than the God in the Bible and the God in the church seemed to be saying to me. And in some ways, the God, who whatever God works in the world, was was also, you know, through the culture, was also saying something different as well. And in some ways, the culture seemed more welcoming than the church. And um, I was watching friends of mine, women, walk away from their faith entirely or walk away from their call in order to resolve that tension. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I remember my husband coming home. He was studying Greek at the time, and he was doing a word study on the word heisukia, in um, the First Timothy 2 passage that women should be silent. And he said, oh, this is really good news because it doesn't really mean you shouldn't speak. It means it relates to like a, a peace in your heart. And mm. he was trying to be encouraging and he was encouraged by it, but I was really challenged by it because I didn't have a peace in my heart. And it was because of that particular <laughs> passage. So it was this like strange irony and almost cruelty of like, ah. Uh, <laughs> It's because of this passage that I don't feel peace. I, I feel parts of me are torn and different pieces of my life are telling me different things and where is God in all of this. But it was actually a moment of kind of um, conversion, I think. I don't think I would have understood it in this way at the time, but I realized now that what I was saying was, okay, so the God of creation is one God. 
there is peace in him. He is whole. He is united in himself. His church and his body and his message through the word, his message in my heart through the spirit are actually all one. <laughs> uh, I just don't see how they're one. And so instead of rejecting him, I, I chose to sit in the tension of that for about seven years, uh, which I'm really proud of as a young adult that I was like, <laughs> these all of these things are too important to give up on and, and there must be some way if God is real that these things can be one. Um, and so God actually shaped my heart through the through sitting in the tension of that. And I think not only did that bring me to a place of feeling peace as a woman in leadership, it actually shaped me as a pastor and as a person, as a follower, because there are so many things just in life and in leadership that you come to these crisis moments where things, you know, on the one hand, I feel God is calling us to be here as a church. On the other hand, we don't have any money. Like, Mm-hmm. There is a conflict between those two things. God is supposed to be the one who provides. So far, he hasn't provided. So, you know, like to be in those conflict moments as a leader and say, well, he is one <laughs> and uh, there is a way forward. Even if we don't see it, maybe we'll be stretched in the process. So um, that's where even though the process then of of going on to be a leader in that very denomination that didn't allow women into the preaching classes and that felt like a really unhealthy, unsafe place for me in seminary, my husband then went on to teach at that place. So for the last 24 years, um, that was also our context. When your husband was at the uh, school teaching, women were still not allowed to be a part of the preaching? In the beginning. Yep. In the beginning, he was actually a big part of helping make that change possible. But then that got him in quite a bit of trouble. And I actually expected him to lose his job um, anytime because of my role. And, And there were there were people who were blogging about us and, you know, talking to the churches that supported that seminary about us and telling them don't support that seminary because um, this professor has a a wife who preaches. And so the the school lost a lot of funding as a result of my job. And I just assumed he was going to lose his job at any time. And his, his job was the main income. So, um, you know, that was really personal and right. we had kids and we like to eat. So, <laughs> yeah. but God somehow brought us through it. And as a people pleaser and someone who hates conflict and who hates um, attention, you know, that kind of attention, especially um, to be seen as this kind of Jezebel who was disruptive and rebellious and, you know, all kinds of names were called um, was really painful to hear that from people that you look up to and that you see as, um mentors or leaders Mm -hmm. you know it actually has done some work in me of saying yes the church speaks on behalf of god some most of the time ideally (laughs) um but sometimes it doesn't and there are points i think anybody who has been harmed by human beings who lead the church have a choice they can walk away from the church and there's a good reason for them to do that and many of them do there's also a moment to say okay well what does god say (laughs) And for me, um, I know my faith has grown every time there's been a rejection like that on behalf of the church. So I can speak to the one who who birthed the church and say, yeah, but what do you say about me? And so it's really, it's forced me to need him in different ways Mm -hmm. and um, honed my sense of identity in him. So although it's been probably one of the most painful things in my life. It also has been one of the places, as always, you know, one of the places of greatest healing and renewal as well.
So you finished high school, you got married, you completely changed cultures, you went to a school um, that had something called snow, <laughs> um, was very cold. I don't, does it, do you get snow in Brisbane? No, I'd never seen snow here. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, everything is different. Building a different kind of relationship with your boyfriend, a fiance, to husband. All of this is going on while you're being challenged with should a woman be in leadership in the church also. That's a lot to roll together, I guess. Mm, yeah. Oh, my goodness. When you put it like that, I'm like, wow, how did I survive that? I know. <laughs> um, I don't know. God is good. Um, and I think it, I guess it gives you capacity for the things you learn in crisis and you know, Richard Raw's language of order, disorder, reorder really gives great language to this possibility that although, especially in the Western culture, we think that life and blessing means stability and comfort and all that stuff, but really, you know, God does some of his best work in the wilderness times. And so mm. um, there was there was blessing in all of that. There was goodness in all of that at the same time. So. I have to say, too, that there's something about the American culture that politicizes things and polarizes things that um, even if it's an issue in other places, it honestly, I think that um, in other places, the church is so small and the resources are so few that there's not the luxury to divide over all the things that American churches can divide over because, you know, in the church I grew up in, if if we split over all the issues, then be like a church of five people down there and a church of three people down there, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was one thing that surprised me in the culture in general in the States and in the church as well, that people felt the luxury to bring these issues to a point of tension and division among Christian people. Um, so there was, there's some, I think, some strongholds related to all of that stuff that are kind of in, that are entrenched in the American church that were especially kind of toxic, I think, for me. Yeah. Right. Um, but I'm seeing healing coming, especially with this particular um, conversation about women in leadership. I'm seeing more and more women be released. I mean, I think it's it's really ramped up even in the past five or ten years that when I first was entering into leadership 20 or so years ago, I felt really like I was really alone in my particular circles. But, um, you know, when I go to conferences and travel around the place, I'm just with so many young women who are, who are stepping up. And it makes no sense as the church is shrinking and we're having fewer and fewer paid roles that there's this army isn't a great word, but this like <laughs> this force that God is providing, whether they will get paid or not, I don't know, but. Um, but there is a, a this wealth of leadership gift that God is bringing in a new way, right when the church needs to do things in new ways that mm -hmm. they're like, okay, <laughs> maybe uh, maybe you could bring our our voices into the mix, you know. What was your journey towards healing? You talked about the seven years that was kind of wilderness and challenging. How did you get to that place of peace yeah. and being with it? So I think uh, 
you know, I was very aware when I stepped from associate pastor into the lead pastor role, um, how much that was going to hit the fan with the denomination we were a part of because it was the first, as far as I could see, it was the first female lead pastor role among 6,000 congregations. And um, it did kind of so you were kind of under the radar as you were associate pastor, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. That was okay because I was coordinating volunteers and you know planning church services and things. Um, but then when it was becoming a preaching role, it became a much bigger deal. But there's this interesting loophole where those that particular denomination um, has has traditions and practices, but um, doesn't have a central. Uh, ordination kind of process so each congregation does its own ordaining so I kind of there was a loophole there where I um, because my particular congregation said no we want Mandy to be the leader then um, then I could be the leader Um, but it also it's I was still very aware of the context I was in and of course um, the people in my congregation were super welcoming but I think in some ways some of the most painful things are the places where in people's minds, they are affirming of a woman in leadership, but they may not have seen it before or experienced it before, so they don't actually know what that means. And for some people, it's just like, oh, she just has a different voice and she wears a dress. Like, I don't think there's always an appreciation of that means maybe she'll have a different way of of preaching or a different way of making decisions or, you know, because I was also speaking at different workshops and conferences and things. And there have been places where, you know, I've, I've been in the middle of talking and someone like interrupts me to challenge me in the middle of my workshop and things like that, that like it's a stranger, he's being actually pretty rude. And, um, you know, it makes my heart is something right now just to remember a few situations where there was that really obvious challenge or really inappropriate behavior, um, you know, or someone after a wedding uh, whispering in my ear from behind when I was sitting at the table, I've never seen a pastor with such nice legs. Like really obvious, like just really, I mean, I, I guess I do have nice legs. I don't know. I don't care. But They never told very... me I had nice legs. <laughs> but that, I mean, for me, it wasn't a compliment. It was a power move. And I, I felt know. so icky. Yes. For, the, for the rest of that week, I just felt, you know, like, oh, what did I do wrong? I thought I was dressing modestly and, you know, Ugh, it was icky and he was like old enough to be my dad it was just ugh. Yeah. Um, and he did and it was in front of all my staff like I was sitting at my table with all the all the pastoral staff from my church and he said that to me and it just uh anyway so there are some things like that that it's just like everybody can say oh no that's inappropriate and you know but but there's so many other places where it's just so hard to say is this a female is this a gender thing or is this a personality thing or is it my is is it my chance to um to grow from this or is it a place where I need to just be myself and trust that somehow the world will adapt, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and I have I often do um collages when I'm processing stuff and I made a collage of a picture of a man being being groomed, like a, he has a beautiful beard and he's got a barber who's like grooming, grooming his beard and um he looks very handsome. And then I took the same like I made another copy of that same hairstyle and tried to and found a woman's face and put it on the woman's face and the same hands of the barber is like shaving shaving the woman of course she doesn't have a beard and she's got all these kind of cuts on her face and um and I think I called it something like groomed for leadership where Mm -hmm. there's the same barber doing the same things but they're not working on the woman you know, it's not having the same effect. It worked on the man and he's looking beautiful with his big beard, but 
but the barber could say like, well, what's wrong with her? Because I'm doing the same thing. Why isn't it working? Like it's her problem, <laughs> you know, because this this way that I've always cut people's hair, of course it should it should work. It does. It works for everybody else. What's wrong with her? Um, and meanwhile, she's like bleeding, <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of people saying like, oh, maybe we need to think about this in a different way um, to adapt to the fact that this is actually our expectations are harming this person and not allowing her to live in her fullness. Um, and so it's a very painful thing when you're like, okay, I'm asking people to change all their expectations of everything they've ever seen before, the whole way of training and developing and receiving a leader. It's That's much harder than them just saying, oh, Mandy, um, you just need to do it the way that we're familiar with, you know. Mm. So I understand it's you're putting people in a very difficult situation and especially if you're leading young people, um, they have the model of of mother that's like i think most people who haven't been led by a woman before they they're like oh well this is just like my mom i've known that and that's familiar and there are some ways that i am maternal in my leadership but there are some ways that being a lead pastor is not being a mother and and sometimes there were just disconnections of like but i thought you were here to always make us feel better and to always say yes to us and comfort us you know and i can't as a pastor always do that so no that was that was a long answer but no, that was a great answer. Yeah, I I grieve hearing about the leg story. I mean, particularly in public settings, how do you confront that mm-hmm. without sounding like the angry person? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the harmfulness of that kind of situation when you're hearing about your legs instead of the word of God that you just shared with people. Mm-hmm. So this is nothing nothing similar, but I was 40 years old when I became head of staff for the first time. And I followed a guy who was close to 70 and he'd been at the church for 25 years. And at my first leadership meeting of the elders, and it was a woman elder and she called me Sunny boy. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm like, I'm 40. Mm-hmm. I have friends that are leading large companies at this time. Yeah, that's uh, a power move. But, you know, I was in that same situation. I could have said something there to put my finger down, but I just chose to move on from mm-hmm. it and yeah. and grow with the church. Yeah, But that's and- a very minor thing compared to the regular stuff that you had to deal with as a woman. But I think all human beings can experience this and maybe I'm um, guilty of doing the same to other people too. You know, I don't want to assume that women are the only ones who experience these things or that women are always um, innocent of of their own power plays, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I think we all have a tendency. And I think this is where some of the healing has come for me as well is, you know, Miroslav Volf does wonderful work about um, what the gospel really does in places where you are tempted to violence. And violence is not only physical violence, you know, like in those moments you feel justified. And I actually feel like my wrestling with God over the pain of some of those situations has been what has taught me the more than anything about my need for the good news of Jesus when I've come to these places of feeling like there is nothing so powerful in my life as this draw to just follow the Lord and say yes to him. And there are men who have stood in my way or systems that have stood in my way and said, 
no. And that has felt like this incredible tension. And I remember one day in particular, a particular man um, was, was basically saying like, all the things that you're doing, I can't follow you. You can't, you can't be a leader here until you look like this. And I, I was praying to God and saying, when, you know, like, how dare he, when will he? And it was all like unhealthy kind of um, enmeshment, you know, and I felt the Lord say like, you need to let that die. And, and I almost felt like he was like the voice of patriarchy again. I was like, not you too. Like you're telling me to submit once more. And I was like, I'm not having that, you know. And he was like, oh, no, no, I'm not telling you to submit to this person or to agree with his approach. I'm saying, like, let your indignation die because I did, not mm. because, not because. And I was like, man, well, if you're going to pull that one on me, like, how can <laughs> I say no, you know? And I suddenly sensed, like, what if God, we think about God's wrath, God's wrath, um, and this, all this like formulaic, like everything didn't add up in the ledger. And so God paid off our debt. Like it was this transactional kind of thing. What if he had this depth of pain in his life? This comes around to the theme of your podcast. What if the fact that we took his, his creation, but not him? What if the fact that we were like, we don't want you. We want this life. We want this beautiful planet. We just don't want you. What if that broke his heart? And in the same way as, you know, when somebody breaks our heart, we want to come back and we want to take all that pain that they've created in us and we want to throw it at them. We want to roll it all up into a ball and take it out on them, whether through words or through behaviours or violence physically. And we feel justified in doing that because they hurt us and so this is what we're going to do. And I realised that what I felt God was asking me to do in that day was like this almost physical pain from all over my body, roll it up into a pill, like a poisonous pill and swallow it. And I genuinely thought this is going to kill me. And, but I, because he said, no, do it because I did it. I was like, well, how can I say no to that? And what I felt in that moment was actually a death to my particular way of seeing the situation. I didn't die. My my being stuck, my being enmeshed in this, like, I can't live my full life until somebody else gets me or says okay to my calling. I was just so released suddenly from that. And so instead of taking it out, taking out this pain on somebody else, I felt like God was just like, this is what we do. This is the Christ-like way. Like we say, I, I refuse to be violent. I refuse to pass on the pain by putting it onto somebody else. And I, I choose to trust that, that Jesus takes on that pain and that he could have taken out all of his pain on us and he chose not to. And there is a place in him that ab just absorbs that pain, that lets it blow up inside um, like a cartoon character, like swallowing a bomb so nobody else gets exploded, you know, like this like explosion took place in Jesus so that he wouldn't take it out on us. And that feels more relational. That feels more relatable. And it, and it, it requires us to say, wow, God felt pain. Like we pained him. We broke his heart and, and he could have just blown us up. <laughs> he could mm. have wiped us out and he would have been justified. Mm -hmm. And instead he was like, no, I love you too much to let you feel the pain that I feel. And instead, I'm going to take it all in myself. I'm going to absorb the things I want to take out on you. And instead, I'm going to come, then I'm able to come back to you with peace. 
And so something happened in me that day that released me from this enmeshment with this particular person. And I actually suddenly could see these scripts that we had, these kind of roles that we were playing. And once one person breaks out of that crazy kind of spiral, then it it just breaks the script for everybody. And so I felt like I could go back and be like, look at this thing we're stuck in. We're both stuck in this. And is there a better way? Your most recent book is called Unfettered, Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture. So I was curious if we could lay some groundwork for a discussion on Christianity and empire and Western culture, because there are a lot of people in the West who would label themselves Christian, but have very little knowledge of the history of Christianity, specifically as an empire, I'm also curious, uh, what are your definitions of kingdom versus empire? Mm. Well, kingdom, I think, is just anywhere where God reigns, you know, any heart that turns to him, any organization that is shaped by kingdom values is a place where God is able to reign. So it's not visible all the time. You know, it's hard for us to say, okay, everybody who's following Jesus, raise your hands, like there's the kingdom. And um, so that feels then like it's just a metaphor or like it's not a real thing. You know, empire is is more often easier to point to. It's got a website. It's got a brand. It's got not that those things are bad things in themselves. But, you know, the Roman Empire, for example, you could count the warriors. You could count the resources. You could count the fortresses. um, You could count the chariots. It was easy to say, like, whoa, there's serious power there. And meanwhile... Um, this little kingdom of God, you know, the, the, Jesus' little ragtag bunch was was somehow flying under the radar. They didn't have a structure, which to us looks weak. But the amazing thing is they continue to exist today somehow. And um, the Roman Empire is no more. The Roman Empire is rubble, and it's because of how uh, physical and how uh, how you know you can you can point a cannon at a fortress, <laughs> you can mm-hmm. shoot an arrow at a at a soldier, but but the yeast in the dough is really hard to find. It's really hard to see. And it's hard to, once you've kneaded some yeast into a ball of dough, then like good luck getting it out of there, you know. Mm-hmm. So so the kingdom functions on this relational level between us and God, between us and one another, that it just spreads the way human beings function through relationship. And so even the fact that those ordinary people who are following Jesus in that first century time, they're using the Roman roads that were built for for Roman uh, commerce, they were built for war. At the same time, these little Christians were able to just use them to spread the gospel of Jesus. And that went all over the world and continues to spread today. And nobody can nobody can remove that from my heart or your heart, you know. So it's invincible in a strange way, even though it feels invisible, you know. I'm going to look it up because there's a quote on your website that I feel like goes right into this um it's um doing kingdom things in kingdom ways and that will mean holding christianity to its own claims so you just mentioned 
this little ragtag group of people are using empire roads to spread the good news of Jesus or the, the gospel of Jesus. But like, what is that? What is the good mm, news? Why is, right. why is that different than empire? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because kingdom of God, you know, we're talking about a king here. And for many of us, the idea of king is even an oppressive concept, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially in the, in the United States, there's this like, well, we don't have monarchy, you know, um, which I get like king, human kings. And throughout scripture, we see that too. There's a reason why God was hesitant to give people a king because human kings are always going to do the, do the violent thing. Like I was talking about earlier, there's this, this human tendency of like, I have power. How can I use it to get my way? And um, so it's this crazy thing that we have this God who calls himself king, who then comes and dies for us and refuses to step into that way of oppression and violence and abuse of power. And so he's a trustworthy king that he calls us to serve him, but then becomes a servant himself, you know. So um, human human empires often are shaped by um, the kind of leader that even if they seem benevolent, often are doing things for their own good um, and, and are always wrestling with that struggle to um, abuse power. And on the other hand, God invites us to, yes, like take up our cross like him. But uh, even the even the hard things he calls us to do are not to harm us, but for our freedom, ultimately. Um, so I think this is a place where it's hard to get our heads around that there really could be one who wants to lead us without abuse. Mm. Um, but that is the hope. So is that the in the title of the book, it mentions childlikeness. Is that kind of the connection there the childlikeness gentleness yeah, I think I think it's a part of it that um well I think that the childlikeness is that um there's a posture which goes against the way we're raised in western world um a childlike posture which invites us to just be open to something outside of ourselves and um there's the way that I often explain it is that in the western world we are we are shaped by two really powerful forces. Well, probably many, but the two that I name are the I think therefore I am kind of dynamic from Descartes, you know, that that we are basically brains on legs and what we think is who we are, which which sidelines um our bodily experience, our senses, our instincts, you know, our relationships, creation, it sidelines information we get from all those other places and really just says the only thing that's legitimate is what you can understand with your mind. So it leads to a very, when we bring that then into Christian faith, Western Christianity brings that in, that leads to a very dry faith that requires us to understand everything. And when we can't, then we say, well, I guess I don't believe. And it doesn't, it doesn't welcome in all the other parts of ourselves. But as children, we, we knew how to engage as whole beings, as humans who trusted all of those parts of ourselves. And then secondly, um, we don't name this as obviously as the Descartes statement, but I, I do, therefore I am, is this other like industrial revolution, you got to get stuff done, productivity is your identity kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just in the water as well, which then when we bring that into Christianity um, becomes this activistic kind of works-oriented I got to work my way to become like Jesus um, approach. 
and when I say this to people that like, oh yeah, we're stuck in this West, these Western habits of I, I think therefore I am and I do therefore I am. It's so funny. I see this in myself. We say like, oh yeah, that's right. We need to think about this so that we can fix that. And I'm like, yeah, like we're doing it again. <laughs> we're thinking about it in order to fix it. And so um, children, children weren't surprised when they weren't in control of everything. We didn't like it all the time, obviously, but you woke up in the morning and someone else was already cooking breakfast or whatever and you just joined the day you know you just you trusted that you had a part to bring but it wasn't the whole thing and and so I think in both of those ways both in engaging as whole beings and in um having a better sense of like the world is not entirely on my shoulders both of those ways as children I think were ways that we were just more human we were more comfortable both with our limitation and our agency as children and so uh, there's a way that that I think we can do it again. That's really hopeful to me. Mm. That um, being being childlike is not just whimsy and wonder, which although that might be part of it, because I think when we say it's whimsy and wonder, then that means but we got to get to work sometimes. Like that's nice on vacation or on the weekend, but but you can't be whimsical and one and wondrous all the time. But you can be this kind of human all the time. And even when you're working, even when you're doing very grown-up things. So would you agree with the statement or challenge me on the statement that children are more comfortable just being and are more comfortable open to mystery? I think so. I I mean, yeah, I think I think as we're growing up, we're taught be responsible, think about other people, don't don't just give in to your whims and and your emotions, but nobody ever says, but keep some of those things too. Like you used to be good at stuff. Make sure you bring them with you into adulthood. And, um, and they're very important skills for following the spirit. And so I think the story that I tell in the book is going from a place of on sabbatical saying like, what am I supposed to do with my time? And sensing like, I can just be like a child. So for eight weeks, I was just like, I'm just going to follow my whims. I'm just going to listen to my instincts but by the end of that eight weeks when I went back to work I couldn't tell the difference anymore between those childlike instincts in me and the spirit of God prompting me and then it became kind of serious you know as a leader then I had to be like oh man <laughs> I've opened a can of worms here and it was starting to prompt me to do some things that were pretty scary you know but pretty brilliant and amazing yeah like transformative like one of the first things was pray for healing for this woman in the church who's really hard to imagine could ever be healed and invite the whole church to do it too. And my first thought was like, no, uh, not doing that because what if I get her hopes up and she's disappointed? What if the whole congregation gets disappointed? What if I make big claims and God doesn't follow through and God looks bad and I look bad and everybody gives up hope and, (laughs) and so had to, instead of just saying like, there's a lot of baggage there, I'm just not even going there to just say, well, if God's, if God's prompting me to do it, there must be, it is in the Bible <laughs> mm-hmm. to pray for healing for people. There must be some way to navigate this that will actually be good. And one of the biggest things that was healed in that for our whole community was trusting that we can ask for things without knowing what God's going to do and putting ourselves out on that limb of saying, and we, we started saying, I don't know what God will do, but I know what he can do. Right. And that's a scary thing to say, to be like, I'm going to trust that he can do it. And I'm going to be okay even if he doesn't do it. That's scary. <laughs> and God heals in very different ways. 
Yes, there was some real, there may not have always been physical cures, but there was so much healing in that, right. venturing into that. Yeah. yeah. I, and at, I the, was, at the same time, there were physical cures as well. But, right. But yeah, I, I'm sure you know something about I've that. I've experienced that in my life, but I've yeah. also had people praying for me in this situation, and uh, the healing is very different. Yeah. The body is yeah. not changing. The body's right. changing in a way that is not fun, but, but, um, the healing continues constantly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and um, even the people that Jesus healed eventually died, you know. So the healing can't be forever and all of us all of us will be redeemed in our bodies one day. We just may not see it. That's I think that's the thing that I came to with with praying for healing for this particular person. I do believe that she will be healed. It may not be in this life. <laughs> right. Um, and actually, as I was praying for in preparation for being with you today, I was remembering something that Barbara Brown Taylor wrote, which really helps me personally and as a pastor with all of this, with everything we've been talking about. And she says, Job's story had pain and suffering. And she says, pain is the actual circumstances. You can't argue with the fact that he lost an incredible amount. There was real pain in his life but then in addition to the pain was the suffering of of believing that it meant god had forsaken him and there's this whole conversation most of the book of job is this conversation about what does this mean about your relationship with god and where is god in suffering and so she says like even in the pain even if the circumstances don't change we can be relieved of the suffering that comes from our belief that God has forsaken us in the pain. And this is the kind of healing that God has done in me that I'm always tempted to believe this painful situation means God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. Mm. And this is what Jesus does on the cross. I think I don't believe God actually forsook Jesus or the father forsook the son. Um, when he's quoting Psalm 22 there, I think he's quoting the whole Psalm and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the psalm, anybody who knows that psalm knows that it comes around to praise and says, it is finished at the very end. He, God has done it. Right. Um, and so I think it's bad theology to say that 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 God forsook or the Father forsook the Son in that moment. But I think something is possible for us when we acknowledge the possibility that that Jesus was just crying out to the father from what felt like forsakenness that there's a space for us to feel that forsakenness and to acknowledge when god himself is the one experiencing the pain there is no separation between god and pain because god came down to be in that death for us and to say to us you are not separated from god in your pain this is the broken situation of this world but it doesn't mean that god has left you and that's good news amen Amen. You know, I'm I'm not a cartoon person at all, but the swallowing, the cartoon figure swallowing and the explosion that happens inside to protect everybody else, I I that's a beautiful image. Mm. Beautiful. I mean, that's the fullness of grace. Mm -hmm. That's the pain and the suffering and the joy all in one picture. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, Mandy, thank you so much for your time. My last little bit. I want to talk to you for four more hours. (laughs) Sorry, Jeff. Um, lastly, I just want to do a plug for probably my favorite of your books, Mandy, which is called Making a Mess and Meeting God, Unruly Ideas and Everyday Experiments for Worship. So in your heart of hearts, you seem to be an artist. You already mentioned your collages. And this book contains both vulnerable stories from your own experience and very creative ways to use art and materials to encounter God. Even if people never try any of the experiments in their church worship, I definitely recommend this book for your own personal emotional growth with God. You can find it and all of Mandy's books on Amazon.com or go to thewayistheway.org. Though I will warn you, there are several other Mandy Smith books out there that aren't by this Mandy Smith. Yes. So make sure that you have the right one. <laughs> yeah, ones like Steamy Confessions of a Virgin Airline Hostess or something yes. like that. Oh, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So. That's not you? <laughs> no. It was actually on my prof- on my author profile on there and I had to write to them and say, um, could you take this away? Because it's like the bio for that book is like, Mandy Smith is a pastor. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I feel sorry for that author. That's killing her vibe too. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, when you're looking it up, make sure you have the right Mandy Smith. Um, And don't don't type in Barry Manilow either because that will mess you up. Oh, yes, that will get the song. (laughs) Well, we wish you nothing but the best. I hope you are enjoying your home country. And um, yeah, next time we see you down the line, it will be wonderful. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well.